Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. My name is Dan Hafner. Super excited to join you with another episode. Um, I got another really fun guest on here, uh, Matt Spettle. Spettle, sorry, you just told me. <laughs> <laughs> I already forgot. I'm so terrible with names. Um, it's, it's a really cool platform. Matt's a really cool guy. We're going to talk about it um, here in a second. Um, it's called mycopilot.com. It's kind of a timely thing. We're in the New Year's, you know, we're in January here, 2024. It's a New Year's thing. Um, so we'll get to that in a second. Um, and we'll, we'll let Matt kind of take the floor here in a second. But as I always say, when we start, um, thank you all for joining. Really appreciate it. Um, if if you're watching this on YouTube, please like and subscribe, ring that little bell. Um, if you're listening to this on Spotify, wherever you're listening to this show or podcast, um, really, really appreciate any ratings, reviews, shares of any of this content. Um, because it just really, really helps. And, you know, share it with somebody who you might think it might get value out of this. If you know someone who wants to be a founder or um, looking to start a business maybe this year in 2024, um, these types of shows, and especially this story, I think we're going to hear from Matt, um, can be inspiring and, and actually useful for you um, to listen to. And it's definitely, you know, some time well spent for that. So anyways, got that business end out of the way. Matt, welcome to the show, man. How you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. We found out we're uh, we're not too far from each other. Both kind of located here in the Pittsburgh area, so um, so this is this is a local one. I don't have a lot of people from from the local area, so that's but that's what's cool about remote stuff. You can you can kind of do it anywhere, and it, it's just you know what I mean. It's the world has just grown so much. So, um, well, awesome, man. So tell us a little bit about um, a little bit about mycopilot.com. Like, what the heck is this thing? Yeah, happy to. I mean, so today Copilot is a remote personal training service. So we use a bunch of cutting edge tech to make what is, you know, obviously traditionally a pretty expensive service of a personal trainer, you know, a few hundred bucks an hour, maybe where we, we work really hard to make that entire service cost just a hundred bucks per month and give you unlimited access to one of those experts to help you achieve your fitness goals. Dang. Uh, and so sort of the core of the platform, as you know, I alluded to, is you're working with one of these amazing coaches who we have on our staff full-time. You use our app, and specifically, we have uh, apps for like smartwatches as well that allow the coaches to kind of, you know, quote-unquote, see what you're doing as you're exercising using a lot of those sensors in the watch in the phone. So, for example, we can tell, you know, how many reps you're doing, how your pacing is, how your form is even just based on these sensors that everyone has, you know, on them as they're working out. And so that allows to kind of strike this balance between the technology and giving you all this live feedback, but also this like human element of, you know, meeting you where you are and personalizing and holding you accountable, right? That's the hardest part in fitness is showing up and doing the work. And human experts and, and just other humans in general are are pretty good at uh, at helping hold us accountable, whereas software by itself tends to struggle a bit. That's really interesting. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, this reminds me. I don't talk about it all that much um, anymore. But this was my very first venture into um, into the world of apps and software. Was uh, an actual running and fitness app back in the day. And for those wow. of you who might be still uh, remnants of the old show, um, it was called Runwage, and it was kind of with a psychology based um, accountability form of kind of putting some money as, you know, using money as a motivator and, and a way to stay accountable and things like that. So I have a soft spot for these types of, um, okay. fitness accountability things. Um, I kind of, I dove down that way. I ended up retiring it and sunsetting it. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was, it was, it, I learned a lot from it. It was really, really fun. So, uh, but we're not here to talk about that. I just, I just wanted to, it's just fun. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I yeah. will say that 
that uh, putting money on the table was definitely on the list in those early days of like, okay, how can we solve this problem of like buy-in and accountability? It's like, well, literally you could buy in, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I I like that concept. We haven't executed that here at Copilot, but I, I think that's really cool that you, uh, that you built that before. Well, there you go. Maybe there's a future fe uh, feature that you guys could add in someday. Who knows? Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, well, that's very, very cool. So, um, so we talked about this a little bit before we got on here, but I mean, did you have a background in this? Like, how did how did this whole idea start? You know, I, I mean, how did how did you uh, give us the backstory to it? Yeah, happy to. And it, you know, I, I have to rewind pretty far to get to the real origin, which is you know back actually to when I was in high school. I was the most stereotypical scrawny nerd you could imagine uh still a nerd for the record just a little bit less scrawny uh <laughs> and i would basically just sit at my computer all day long and i would play a lot of games and i was interested in things like you know coding and, and things like this but definitely was not an expert by any means just kind of a hobbyist teaching myself uh and back in high school i met this guy gabe who became my best friend and is now my co-founder of this business and he was, you know, he was both technical and smart, but really, really uh, advanced on the athletic side. And he sort of opened my eyes to, wow, I, you know, there's this whole other side of, you know, being human of like moving your body and being active. And it sounds silly, right? But I was so focused on intellectual things that I had totally discredited, you know, fitness and health and strength training and all these things. And he really showed me that whole world and how valuable and rewarding it could be uh, to improve yourself in that dimension as well. So Gabe and I built this amazing friendship where, you know, we were exploring techie things together, but we were also hitting the gym almost every single day together. And that uh, that's where sort of these initial ideas started getting thrown around, but it took us a while to actually bring it into fruition to an actual product. It was, you know, five, six years after that initial time we met when we were in school, we were both studying engineering. Gabe was at MIT up in Cambridge and I was at Carnegie Mellon down in Pittsburgh, which is you know where I still am today. It's what brought me here. And uh, we were fundamentally, we were just frustrated that a lot of uh, fitness apps and wearables really only were catering towards cardio uh, exercise. You know, it, it would track your, your runs and your steps and your heart rate and your calories and these kinds of things. But what we were most passionate about and still are today was the sort of, you know, the more traditional strength training of, you know, you pick up a weight, you do some reps, you do some sets and you get stronger over time. And it, it really felt like the entire tech and tracking and wearable space had kind of neglected strength training because it was fundamentally a lot harder <laughs> to track. It was a lot more complex right. uh, than, than cardio. And so we started writing little bits of software and apps and things to try to just track what people were doing using these wearable devices. And so that's where sort of the rep counting and the pacing analysis, excuse me, the pacing analysis and the form analysis came from originally. And we brought this out into the world, we gave it to people and we got this reaction of, you know, whoa, this is cool, but you know, this isn't changing my life. You know, I probably wouldn't, you know, pay for this, right? It's like, yeah, I would try it. I would talk about it, but you know, it was very much a, a nice to have. I like to say it was not, it was not solving a super painful problem. It was just cool. And so we started challenging ourselves of what are these actual painful problems that we could try to solve in this space of strength training and fitness and, and how could we use this technology to do that? 
And, you know, that, you know, it's easy to summarize it in one sentence now, but we were stuck in that state for probably, I don't know, 18 months at the time, you know, trying to figure out, does anyone want this? What can we, you know, the classic early stage entrepreneurial questions. And eventually what we came to was the two big problems were people didn't know what to do when it came to strength training. They were simply, you know, overwhelmed and intimidated by all the options, all the plans, all the different machines, the weights. And more importantly, they didn't have the accountability or the motivation to show up and do it at the gym, even if they knew what to do. And so we said, we can solve these problems. We can, we can, or rather a personal trainer, a real traditional in-person personal trainer is really good at solving both of those problems, but they're really expensive. They're still kind of intimidating. You still have to show up to the gym at 8 a.m. sharp to you know, have your session. And what if we could take this tracking technology and we could take the benefits of a personal trainer and we could bring them together to sort of enable this first of its kind remote training experience. Uh, and that's when the idea of Copilot is born. And that we also had our at the right place at the right time moment, because about six months after we made that pivot, COVID started. Knew it. <laughs> uh, so then, you know, this idea of, you know, obviously when we first pivoted to that, I would say, yeah, we're a remote personal training company. And people would look at me kind of weird of like, that's something you can do remote, right? And then obviously once COVID hit and everything became remote, suddenly we were positioned really, really well to become, you know, one of the leaders in the space. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. Well, just a couple of notes on all that. So just real quick, uh, going back to like your trajectory of, you know, kind of being like coding, quote unquote, nerd, nerd type of stuff as a younger, and then kind of getting more into the other side of life. That's kind of funny. As you said that, I was like, well, I was kind of the opposite. Like I, I played sports. I never cared about anything computers as a, as a, you were a game, you were a game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I kind of went the other way of like, Oh, this is actually kind of, but, and <clears throat> it's interesting. Cause I think more and more as we all, you know, spend more time working and sitting and stuff like I've, I've gained weight. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, this type of solution is definitely something that I need and stuff too. So anyway, that was just a, a side note that, that doesn't really matter, but, um, but I really love if every, if, for those of you listening, like go back and listen to what, like the progress of that, what he just said about that was, I loved when you were like, well, this isn't, it was a nice to have. It wasn't solving a painful problem. You know, I think I, I see that a lot. I've seen, I've seen that with myself um, is, you know, you would get these, and I think it's a natural entrepreneurial thing, especially kind of when you start up or you have like new things is, yep. oh, this would be really, really cool to have. Right. And it, the, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not something that can be useful and that people will eventually pay for. There's, there's a painful problem in there somewhere. But just like you guys, you kind of had to uncover that, yep. right, through that process. So just, you know, for those of you out there who, like, have ideas like, oh, this would be actually really cool to have. Okay, that's great. That's a, that's a good place to start. Now it's what actual painful problem can that solve while it's still cool? You know what I mean? Yeah. And one of the things that people always ask me is, you know, well, how do you, how do you measure that? Like, how do you know if you actually have a painful problem? And you know, for better or for worse, asking people to pay for something, in my opinion, is like the ultimate way of measuring that where, you know, the classic entrepreneurial mistake is you come up with a cool idea, you 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 write up a paragraph about it, or you build a prototype and you bring it to your your best friend across the hall and you say, hey, man, like, what do you think about this thing that I built? And like, they would really have to be an asshole to tell you, you know, like, this sucks, I would never use this. Like, they're probably going to say something like, 
yeah, this is, this is cool, man. Like, this is awesome. Like, yeah, I would totally use this. Like, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you say, awesome. Well, actually we're taking pre-orders for a hundred bucks. Like, do you have your credit card on you? And they say, oh, you know, I forgot my wallet in my car. And, you know, there's in, in, asking people to actually put money, something that definitively, you know, quote unquote matters to them, right? On the line is ultimately the only way I've found to really tease out, like, is this actually valuable to them? Is this actually really deeply intriguing to them? Or are they just trying to, you know, be nice and sort of not discourage you as an entrepreneur? <laughs> um, so yeah, like when we asked people to pay, it opened our eyes and we realized, yeah, like, no, like this is just cool, not valuable. Interesting. Very, very interesting. And one thing I will add too, I was actually coming across this last night when I was, um, you know, I was actually laying there in bed, kind of had, you know, some, some last minute thoughts of the day of, oh, I could add this to my new product that I'm building. And um, I'd be very careful for those of you that use ChatGPT for this kind of stuff, because it's it's kind of like the roommate across the hall, like you said, it's very encouraging a lot of the time. Yeah. I'm like, hey, what would you think about this idea for this product? It's like, wow, that's a great idea, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm like, well, what about this? And it's like, wow, that's a great idea. It's 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 very positive. Yeah. Um, and it's sometimes we we need that as we do, we do need that validation, I think. Um from, you know, in certain ways, but I also think we also need, like you said, you kind of need some, some real accountability sometimes if someone like, well, maybe because, you know, ChatGPT is not going to pay you for your thing. You know what I mean? Right. So that's very, very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, every entrepreneur needs this duality of this, like endless optimism and belief in what you're doing and like that you're going to do it no matter what. And you're sort of like, you know, always right at the end of the day on some level, because otherwise it's just so easy to give up, right? It's so easy for every, for to listen to that next hater and realize, oh no, I can't, oh, they're probably right. And then like, you can't succumb to that. But at the same time, you can't ignore the reality of of what you're building in your situation either, right? And and it's 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 a direct contradiction, and it's very very difficult to live that in practice. And so that's why you know that that first year of building anything, or that first you know few years of building anything, is really really fun. But man, there is a lot of sleepless nights wrestling with those two forces of like. I know I can do this. I know there's a problem here. I know that blah, 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 right? But also, man, nobody wants to pay me for this. Man, nobody's signing up for this. Like reconciling those is is tough. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so you guys, you know, you guys were a couple of, you know, MIT, Carnegie type of guys. So, so I'm assuming you guys built this yourself? Yep, yeah. Well, okay. it's interesting. In the, in the beginning, we, we both... Uh, knew obviously a lot about like how to code at a baseline, but we had never built apps. We had never built servers. We had never built a database. You know, like we, it's kind of funny reflecting on it. Like these really, really fancy uh, computer science degrees ultimately didn't teach us anything directly about how to build product. It just taught us about how to like think about software, which don't get me wrong, is useful, but it's really hard to just jump out of a class at MIT and build a, a, a product that's good, right? It's a very, very different mm -hmm. skill set. Um, and, and so we actually made the mistake early on of thinking, oh man, we don't know how to build apps. It feels like one of the first things we should do is hire someone who knows how to build apps really well, because if we're gonna build an app company, we need someone who's good at building apps, right? 
And, you know, we got this contractor and we paid them to build a prototype and, you know, da, da, da. And obviously we had next to no money at the time, <laughs> really, really scrappy. Um, and they came back with a prototype and we, me and Gabe just looked at each other and we immediately realized like, this is never going to be successful if we can't figure out somehow to be the ones building this because like we don't have the money for the next iteration this you know contractor isn't thinking about it the same way as us like it's there's so much communication delay like all these things that happen right when you outsource your product mm -hmm. were happening to us and we were like man like we just need to like force ourselves to do this and so we basically just spent a few months like watching YouTube videos about, you know, oh, Stanford's online lecture series of building an iOS app. And, you know, I would message my friends who were a little more savvy in product and be like, hey, can you like sit with me for an hour and teach me how to, you know, set up a server, right? Like, and, and it was the most basic shitty code ever. <laughs> um, but eventually me and Gabe were able to, to scrounge together an actual app and we launched it ourselves and we built it ourselves. And we, I have no doubt in my mind that if we had not pushed ourselves to figure out how to make it be us that was building the product, we never would have, we never would have made it to, to the point we're at today. Uh, we would have ran out of money or the product just wouldn't have been good enough. So I always tell people, you know, even if you don't have that like baseline of computer science or whatever, obviously there's so many tools out there today that, you know, even without quote unquote traditional software, you can build an app, you can set up a basic database, you can, you know, do all these things, but it still requires you to have that initiative to be like, I'm the person who's going to go do this and figure it out. And I think that is the important characteristic for, for a really early stage founder. Yeah. that's really interesting. Um, you know, as, as someone who kind of is like that of, of actually I build prototypes of work with people to do that type of stuff. I a hundred percent agree with what you're, with what you're talking about. There are many times where we'll either get a new client or start working with somebody. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting around how like the, the, the huge lack of clarity that a lot of founders or people have on what they want their idea to be. Um, you know, like I had somebody just tell me the other day, like, Hey, I want to launch this thing in a couple of months, just build me an MVP for it. Um, it just needs to be this like directory type of stuff. Mm -hmm. Can you do that? And I'm like, well, yeah, I could, but like what, you know, there's so many, there's just like an endless Pandora's box of questions. Like, okay, right. you know, what should it actually do? What colors do you want? What font do you want? What do you want it to feel like? What, what should it like? What should it accomplish? What pain is it? You know, exactly. And that's why I tell people, I'm like, it's your thing. It's not my thing. Like I can build it for you all day long, right. but it's you, you, like you said, you are the ultimate one that's responsible for like, this is how it should look. This is and like the, the, uh, episode right before this it's not published yet uh, for those of you guys listening to this it is but she talked about um like being having the standard like the standard is the standard is the standard and it's no like even though i'm outsourcing this to someone even though i'm having someone build this for me like learning to communicate and be very clear on this is what i expect it to be this is how i expect it to work um, and not letting people off the hook for that. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's very interesting. So anyway, I'm just, that's something that no, just no, that's, worked that's through good. My and yeah, like I'm thinking back to those days and I, I can imagine it must be extremely tough to work with those early, especially the earliest stage clients, because I remember me and Gabe would be sitting around and we would, on Monday, we would have one vision for what the product is. And then on Tuesday we would, you know, have stayed up all night realizing we were probably wrong and that the vision was totally different and we needed a totally different feature set. Right. And so again, it's like, yeah, like 
being being having an, enough of a solid vision of your product that you can convey it to someone to build it and like not changing it too much but also changing it enough to respond to feedback that's another one of those things where it's like it's really hard to strike that balance right because you can just you can change forever and never launch as i'm sure you've probably painfully experienced with some people but you know or you can say nope it's never going to change this is the way it is and then you know it's probably not going to be valuable enough so yeah that balance is is tough yeah. Quick question. Did you guys dive down the, um, did you start coming up with designs of what you wanted things to look like and everything before you actually dove into coding? Um, I just wish go? I could say that we did, but I really okay. don't think we did. I, I think we, you know, in, in those earliest phases, we really did not value product design. We didn't value brand. We didn't value marketing at all. Like, to us, the sole purpose was just build a machine that would deliver value and help people. And like that machine didn't necessarily have to be very pretty or very well-branded or Well, anything. that's the developer mindset, right? right that's yeah. that's so we, not we the were, visionary mindset. Yeah, yeah we, were, we were very much just developers building the thing. And oh my goodness, like you should, I, I should pull up some screenshots and, ha and have you post them of, of mm. some initial versions of the app because it was, it was, uh, it was pretty rough around the edges, but you know, it's easy to look back and say, oh man, it was rough and we should have spent more time on design. But like, to be a hundred percent honest, like even that pretty terrible design was good enough for us to validate that at the core, this concept was something that people wanted and that they would pay for it. Like to give you an idea, the very first version of the app that we asked people to pay for, we didn't have any trainers on staff. Like me and Gabe are, are, are you know, enthusiasts, but we are not certified trainers. But basically we were pretending to be trainers under aliases <laughs> and we had a super glitchy buggy app that would probably only run for like a few minutes before it you know crashed for whatever reason and the design was terrible and it was just a bunch of the all the exercises were random gifs of people doing exercises that we had just pulled off of random websites on the on the internet right and we definitely like didn't it. have the content rights for for any of that right it was just I like, like the most thrown together scrappy thing you could imagine and we got i'm trying to think of the like the exact number. i think it was like you know 80 ish people were paying us a hundred dollars a month to train on that system and you know obviously that's a negligible amount of revenue to us today but at the time it was like holy crap there's 80 people paying us a hundred dollars a month for this absolute trash experience, right? <laughs> there, there, you know, imagine if this experience was actually good, there, there's probably potential here, right? Yeah. So again, like it's definitely a trap to try to make your product perfect on V0, but you just have, to, I think you have to be strict about what are the parts of that product that actually deliver the value? And those are the parts that you need to be strict about having built, right? And in our case, it was, being able to talk to the coach whenever you want, being able to have an onboarding video call with the coach and being able to be told what to do in a workout, like one set at a time. Like those, I would say were like the three pieces that did for the most part actually work and everything else could be a glitchy, you know, pile right. of trash. As long as we had those things, it would probably still teach us the lesson that we needed to learn. Interesting. So that's, that's really interesting. I didn't plan on talking about this, but, and I want to cover some more stuff. So I'm gonna try not to linger, but um, that's very interesting. So I used to be the very same way. Like I was a very, like, let's just build stuff. Who cares if it's ugly? 
it'll work and we'll push it out there. Um, Actually, more recently over the past years, even like six months, I've actually kind of changed my mind around that around, well, there's, there's a messaging piece to this. How are we going to sell this? How are we going to build this? But there's also, it's, I found at least for myself, it's a lot easier to build stuff when you actually have design, like you don't just build a design or you don't just build a home without having a blueprint. You know what right. I mean? Like there's, there's things like that. So what I'm curious to you, like, there's that constant chicken and the egg thing. I think with a lot of people, like some people I've seen spend years in Figma trying to get the designs so perfect that like, this is how it's going to be. And it's like, you could have just built something crappy like you guys did first and actually make money. Right. Yeah. But then there's also, you know, that fear of, I think people have of like putting out this crappy product because they're like so proud of like everything I put my name on has to be absolutely perfect and beautiful. Yeah. So my question for you is if you had to go back and do it again, mm-hmm. would you do it any different? Would you, would you design, would you spend more effort and time on the design pieces of it? Or would you have maybe gone the other way and just launched it even earlier and even uglier first? Or would you strike a, a balance? Between yeah, that's that? a really good question. I So <laughs> I think part of what allowed us to launch such a scrappy prototype was the actual reality that we did not, we were such bad designers at the time or not even designers at all at the time that we, I don't even think could fully recognize how bad it was. I think mm. in our minds, we were still pretty proud of what we had built. We were like, yeah, yeah, we, we built an app. Like it has everything we wanted. Like, let's get like, so, but of course, you know, me and Gabe would always joke. If you don't look back one month earlier and think, holy crap, we were so bad or we were so dumb back then. Like you're probably not doing it right. Like definitely is true in this case, right? When I think back to that, I'm like, oh man, that app was terrible. I never would have expected that to work. But at the time, I think I was convinced that it was good. (laughs) Um, And so the question of if I were to go back and do it again, I think almost subconsciously, I would put more energy into design because I've just learned a lot about design over the last six years and a lot about branding and a lot about how all those things come into play. but the question of, is that the right decision is a very different one where I think like there, there is this very awesome advantage you have as a first time scrappy founder who has no idea what you're not doing um, because you can just launch stuff so fast and you can learn so fast versus, you know, even now I could definitely see us going a bit slower because we'd be, again, having those feelings you're describing of, yeah, you know, we're a little self-conscious around like, oh man, this isn't quite what I want to associate with my my brand or my building, right? Um, so yeah, I would always push people on the earlier side, the scrappier side. I think it was Y Combinator that coined the like, you know, you, if you're not embarrassed about what you launch, then you waited too long or something like that, right? Yeah. So definitely push yourself to be embarrassed is what I would summarize as. Okay, no, that's that's really good. That's useful. And, and just as a quick... Um that's not really a plug here, but one thing that I've really liked, and especially with the AI tools that are now available with these days, like you guys probably didn't really have a lot of that back when you were doing that, right? So everyone's at a really big advantage. Um, One tool that I've been using, uh, at least for designs and idea generation and that kind of stuff, it's called UI Izzard or UIzzard or something like that. Um, It has a whole AI thing where you can just type in like, hey, I want this app that's like, mycopilot.com. It's a remote personal training thing and blah, blah. And it just spits out, you know, prototype designs, all that kind of stuff. 
Um, you know, I think Figma is doing some some different things like this. There's probably a bunch of tools. That's just the one I use. Uh, so for any of you listening, you can check it out. It's really, really cool. Um, I'm put, I'll put a link in here. I don't have an affiliate link or anything like that. It's just a link to it, but, um, but that's really, really neat. Okay. So let's, let's move on a little bit. Um, so flash forward to today, we talked about the, the ugly prototype. We had 80 people paying you hundred bucks. Where are you guys at today? Yeah. So we have uh, tens of thousands of clients now paying us doing well. Into Get it, the, man. Yeah. Eight figures of revenue. We have, it's a bit of a vanity metric because all of our coaches are employees, but we have, I think now, yeah, over a hundred full-time employees. Um, so it's, it's over the yeah, over the last five years, it's gone truly from the two sweaty gym nerds in a garage to, you know, a, a fully fledged sort of, you know, growth stage company now. Um, we did decide to go sort of the venture funded path pretty early on. Uh, mm -hmm. Once we started seeing initial traction uh, and we we started seeing strong growth just from getting this version two or version three of the product out into the world back in, I think this is like 20. 19, uh, we definitely attracted the attention of some investors and we decided to go that route. And so back in 2020, yeah, back in 2021, we raised a $3 million seed round. And then since then, we've raised an additional 15 million or so of capital to, to fuel that growth. Um, and most of that has been, yeah, I mean, focused on building up the engineering team, building the product, scaling marketing, all, all the usual stuff. Um, but yeah, that's where we are today. Wow. Very cool. Um, so, okay. That's another good question. Um, you know, how would, would you do, are you happy that you went that route with venture, with getting venture funding? It sounds like you, I mean, you definitely grew a lot faster, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I've, I've talked to a lot of founders who have raised capital and some founders who haven't, but I, I think the most important factor in that answer is ultimately, I think we got very lucky with the kinds of investors that we partnered with at that earliest stage. Um, I wasn't savvy enough at the time to be able to, and probably still not truly, to, to really recognize the good, the really good investors who are really on your side for the long run versus, you know, obviously some who you hear horror stories about, right? And mm -hmm. we got very, very lucky that the investors we took on at that earliest stage were the best investors we could have possibly wanted. And they really supported us in a very genuine way. And then those investors attracted other investors like themselves. And we sort of built this very very supportive um, group and very supportive board. Um, but that has obviously not been the case for a lot of the companies that I've, I've talked to, right? Of, you know, investors can obviously put a lot of pressure on that company for certain outcomes, especially if you're not, you know, maybe achieving the growth that everyone expects, or you want to take things in a slightly different path, right? So it's a trade-off between control and expectations, but then ultimately resource to grow the company. In our case, since we had costs of building technology, and we had the pretty heavy cost of hiring expert personal trainers full time. It wouldn't have been impossible, but it would have been very tough to build this business without any injection of capital from any right. source. It would have been very hard to bootstrap. Um, but you know, yeah. So overall, no regrets. Um, but I think it's it really is a question that you should ask yourself as a founder. I know we didn't really even ask ourselves the question. We were kind of just like, oh yeah, everyone around us is saying 
yeah, you're growing, you need capital, like go VC, like go pedal to the metal, build a billion dollar business. And mm. that was just the environment that kind of surrounded Carnegie Mellon and MIT. Um, so I think if I were to do it again, I would think a lot more deeply about is this business actually a venture business or is everyone just telling me that it should be, right? Um, but yeah, no regrets in this specific case. That's, I mean, that's interesting, you know, because I've, you know, I, when I first had my running fitness one, I, I was kind of in that mindset as well. Like, I'm going to go do this. And then one day it just hit me. I was like, I don't really want to do that. Right. And I'm glad I didn't because then I ended up sunsetting it and going on. Um, but then, you know, people are, I, you know, I have people that work with, I work with or come to me about stuff and they're like, you know, I really want to go on Shark Tank and I want to do this and I want to do that. And I'm like, okay. I mean, but it's, it's, it's situation specific. Cause just like you said, you know, you had, it would have been very hard to bootstrap looking back on it, that was probably a, the better decision to go that route, right? Because I'm even thinking about a, a, a product that I'm launching soon. I'm like, if I got to that point, would I want to do some, you know, get some cash yeah. injection and that kind of stuff? And and for me, I also see that my costs are going to be very, very low. Yep. It would just be hiring an engineering team and doing that type of stuff. I really wouldn't have to hire outside help. So yep. it might be easier to bootstrap. I don't know if I would want to do that, right? So it's very, it's very, um, situation specific you know so it's hard to give like a blanket statement of all that so yeah um all right anyway i'm oh, sorry yeah no go ahead go ahead well i was just gonna say one thing i always add when it comes to funding is and you really have to i think experience taking on funding to understand this fully but i did i definitely didn't understand this was obviously fundraising is like idolized in media and even amongst founder to founder like if i talk to another founder and i tell them we've raised this much that seemingly makes them more impressed by me than any, almost anything else that I could say, right? Which it's is like a, little, a vanity metric, like you said. Right, right. It, which is weird in my opinion. I mean, it makes sense because big numbers, big dollars, like we equate it with wealth and success and all these things. But ultimately at the end of the day, fundraising is you get a wire transfer that shows up in your bank account and then your bank account balance goes up by a lot. And you wake up that next morning and you have the same product, you have the same team, you have the same problems, you have the same reality of whether people actually want what you're building or not, but you have a really big number in your bank account, right? And then you kind of realize like, okay, this is an opportunity and this is a lot of resource, but this doesn't solve any of my issues. If anything, it makes some of the issues substantially bigger and higher stakes, right? Mm. And so I always push people to say like, if you have fundamental issues with your business, money will make them worse, not better. Right. Wow. So I'll always try to be real with yourself with that and, and what you really want it to solve, or if you just think it will solve your issues. Wow. That's powerful stuff. Thank you for, I mean, that's really interesting to just hear, hear you put it that way. It's like, yeah, the next morning you wake up and it's like, yeah, we got, I have $3 million in this account now, but Right. I still same, have the same, same problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Super, still, super. Still nobody wants to give me their credit card, right? Like crap. <laughs> yeah. Cause it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't solve them. Yeah. Like I've always heard that, you know, like more money can solve a lot of problems, but it doesn't solve all problems. You know, it can solve certain problems. Like now I have money to hire people. I have money. To right. Yeah. Like, oh, I need, I can, I need to build this thing faster or we just can't keep up with demand. Like when I hear people saying things like that, I'm like, yes, raise. Like that is almost certainly the right choice. Um, at the, at the right price and everything. But if people are saying, yeah, you know, I just, I just, I, I need more, I need more engineers to help find product market fit, or, you know, I, I need to hire a, a branding agency to do a bunch of PR to do, 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 do. And it's kind of like, you know, you're reaching for a solution, but like, 
the, those very money heavy solutions are almost never, those bets aren't going to pay off, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, be scrappy, you know, hire, work really closely with that agency, really like build that MVP, get it out there, right? And then you can start to scale once you have some proof that people actually want it. Very cool. That, that's super useful. Super good gold nugget right there. Um, okay. My last question, then we'll wrap up for today. Um, if you could give, um, just looking at them back on the whole journey, right? It doesn't matter what, you know, even if it was early stage, funding stage, you know, user acquisition stage, whatever. Um, if you could, if you could give the audience, you know, like uh, one, one major roadblock that you hit that you, you would love to point out for other people to be like, Hey, watch out for that on the road. Cause that sucked. Um, what would it be? Oh, all right. I think this is probably specific to consumer businesses. So businesses that are selling to individuals rather than, than other businesses, but probably the biggest thing would be having a really high standard for the organic growth of your product at the early stages. And what I mean by that is especially once you start raising funding, especially once you, you know, start getting revenue in even from customers, it becomes very easy uh, to start deploying that capital and revenue to marketing and to continue to grow the business. And they call this, you know, the marketing treadmill, if you will, where, you know, you keep, you keep putting money in, you keep turning up the speed of the treadmill, but now you're running on the treadmill and you got to keep running and you keep putting in money and keep raising more. And it creates this sort of like inevitability of always having to spend more money on growth. And that playbook, especially if you have really efficient growth, that playbook can be amazing and you can build amazing companies with that playbook. But fundamentally, I believe that a growth engine that is primarily driven by one user getting another user to sign up for the product because they just think it's that awesome and they want to share it with people is just so much more sustainable. And that sounds obvious, but in the early days, once you start having people write you those $100 checks every month for your product, it becomes so easy to not force yourself to, to chase that, right? You can say, oh man, we got so much cash coming in. Oh man, we got so many investors coming in, like grow, grow, grow. And you start to compromise your standards for, well, maybe if we spent a little bit more time making the product just a little bit more amazing, then more people would share it, right? So yeah, I would say if you're building a consumer product, don't rush into the paid growth, the marketing phase. Try to get as far as you possibly can before you spend that first dollar of marketing, because it truly is. Once you spend that first dollar, it becomes two, it becomes four, it becomes eight, and you're on that path. And it's not a death sentence, but it's a path that you're now on definitively, right? So yeah, that would be my number one piece of like looking back uh, advice to myself, at least. Good. Very good stuff. Man, this was awesome. Very cool. Very cool. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate you coming on. Um, so, so where can we go? Where can we go to check out my copilot? It's just my, my copilot.com, right? Yeah. Just my copilot.com. I believe we're currently doing a two week, uh, free trial. So you can call your coach, you can get your first set of workouts, do a few of them. And then only if you like it after all that you pay. Um, but yeah, I would love to, to get anyone's feedback thoughts on the experience. So go, go check it out. Awesome. Awesome. All right, guys, you can check it out there. I'll have the link in the show notes as well. Um, this is worth another listen. If you guys are on me on here, this was some, this was some really cool stuff. I had no idea we're going to go this route. Um, but very, very interesting nuggets in here. Thank you, Matt, for, for all your, 
um, all of your wisdom you've, you've left with us today. Appreciate it, man. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. All right. All right, everyone. That's going to be a wrap for the show. Thank you very much for joining. Again, please share, uh, rate, review, anything that you can do to share the show. Um, and if somebody's think, you know, if you or somebody you know is thinking about a B2C type of platform, anything like that, um, share this episode with them specifically. I think this is very, very valuable for, um, you know, we kind of heard Matt's story from the beginning all the way up to raising funding and having 100 employees. So, um, you know, if he did it, you guys can do it as well, too. So, all right, everyone, that's all. My, I appreciate you. I'll talk to you in the next one. Dan Hafner signing off. See you later.